You know what I love about second service is that um, you get to enjoy what you experience in first service now double, and um, and um, also you get to correct a few mistakes. The entire first service I refer to Marquis as Marcus, and uh, so <laughs> forgive me, brother. We're so grateful. I've watched that video uh, so many times this week, and. And Marquise, we appreciate you. So we're going to make it up for you now. So you're going to have to help me, church. We're going to say together, may God bless you, Marquise. And so let's just do it on three. One, two, three. May God bless you, Marquise. Good. Not Marcus. God wouldn't know who you're talking about if you said Marcus. Marquise. If you're uh, over 100 years old and uh, grew up singing hymns in a country church, it is likely that at some point along the way you sang the hymn by the title of my sermon today, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. It was written by Philip Bliss in 1871 after he heard a story told by D.L. Moody of a ship that was coming in one night during a storm to Lake Erie Harbor, ready to dock at Cleveland um, on the coast. The captain could see the lighthouse, but because of all the fog, um, he couldn't see anything else, and for some reason that night, a special set of lights that are known as the lower lights, oil-burning lamps that are beneath the lighthouse and extend far out from the lighthouse, the lower lights were not burning. Their purpose is not to mark the city, but to mark the channel. The captain thought he knew the channel well enough. He could navigate it. He didn't. Crashed upon the rocks, and everybody on the ship died. When D.L. Moody told that story, the great evangelist from Chicago, Moody told that story, he said that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the harbor where safety is found for all people. But we, the church, are the lower lights. We point people to the light of the world. This is how Philip Bliss said it in his hymn. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor, fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. So when the church shines in the darkness, people in danger are saved. When the church doesn't shine in the darkness, people in danger die. And that's why Paul wrote such a strong admonition in Ephesians chapter 5, for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated is filled with light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As you may know now, this is our third installment in our series on light versus darkness. And you may say to yourself, I didn't know we were in a series. Well, I didn't either. As a matter of fact, my wife says to me, she said, you're one of the best series preachers I've ever heard. Unfortunately, you don't know you're in a series until it's over. So evidently, this is week three and we'll end up week four celebrating the Lord's Supper, light versus darkness next week. But the reason that I am glad we have slowed down and turned it into a four-week series out of Ephesians 5, especially these final two weeks, is because it has to do more with witnessing and communicating the gospel in a dark culture than any part we have looked at thus far. And I think you would admit the weakest part of my life is finding the courage, maybe the compassion, to shine like Christ in a dark 
culture. If you're a follower of Christ, then you really, your mission uh, that he has assigned you is pretty simple. Do not participate, according to Ephesians 5, do not participate in the dark deeds of, of culture. Mission one. Mission two, shine the light of Christ on the dark deeds of culture. It's all in the text. Don't participate in them. Shine the light on them. Easy to understand. Crazy challenging to fulfill. From the moment that Jesus was born, there has been this light-dark battle. Trying the darkness, trying to put out the light. Darkness only has two desires. To engage and enjoy the deeds of darkness and to extinguish the light so there is nothing but darkness. The darkness is strong, it's powerful, it's intimidating. It's like a black hole in the universe that draws in stars into its gravitational force, destroys them, and devours their light. Everything about Jesus Christ, everything about Christ is turning on the light in our darkness. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what he's doing today, Jesus Christ is turning on the light in darkness in your life already. The, there's not a day in which the light-dark battle never takes place. So let's look at the passage, having said all of that. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. A lot of people see a verse like that, and they say, that doesn't feel right. Um, I'm not comfortable with that. So, because it doesn't feel right, I'm not comfortable. I'm not going to do it. It's amazing that you are saying that because it is a command from the light of the world. I mean, when we, when we concluded Ephesians 4, we had those commands Forgive each other, be compassionate toward one another, bear each other's burdens, and we all sort of said amen. I, that sounds like Christianity. The same God who said that now says, expose the deeds of your culture for what they are, the deeds of darkness. Now, before I say a lot about exposing deeds, let me make it clear, this is just one tool in a very large toolbox Throughout the book of Ephesians and the New Testament, we've seen all other tools that are in this toolbox of grace. Um, there are things like forgiveness, compassion, mercy, generosity. So here's my recommendation, that if you are not utilizing these other tools, I wouldn't pick up the tool, the flashlight tool, and go shining in the darkness and calling your culture to account. If you're loving and being generous and kind, then likewise you are to obey God by exposing the dark deeds of culture. Now, we do that through two ways. We expose the deeds of darkness visually and verbally. So what do I mean by exposing the deeds of darkness visually? It means by your life. You're at an office party people you work with and love and enjoy. Everybody's wasted. You're there, but you're not getting drunk. You're, you're not flirting. Your, your language is pure. And I can assure you, if you live like that in an office party, people will become uncomfortable with that. 
The Apostle Peter said, this is the way the world thinks about such behavior. 1 Peter 4, 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And actually, it's not the people that are doing it. It's evil that is heaping abuse on you because your uh, conviction, the conviction they're feeling is a point of resistance for the devil's work. You, you're there, and as one old preacher said, when the presence of a saint hinders the elbow room of the devil. The presence of a saint hinders the elbow room of, of the devil. So no doubt 1 Peter 4, 4 is it's not enjoyable when you're on the receiving end of that. Um, the natural inclination of the flesh is to swim with the current, not against the current, because when you're swimming against the current, people will say, the world will say, why are you not swimming with us? Because it's pretty obvious at that point. But in God's time, you live like this, exposing the darkness visually. One or two people in your lifetime, in your office, somebody's going to ask you, would you tell me about your life? Why are you not like choosing the values that we're choosing? At that time, you'll have a chance to tell them of Christ verbally. I had a friend that hit uh, all of his colleagues one night, went to a strip club, and... Uh, they asked him, why are you not going with it? He, they invited him. He said, no. And they said, why not? He said, because I don't think it would be honoring to my wife. There was utter conviction upon all those men because they were all married. That's how you expose the light visually. It's by your life. But it's not the only way to expose the darkness. There is a verbal aspect of it. In fact, if you, the, the Greek word for expose in, in First Peter, in, in, uh, in, in Ephesians 5, is, is a linke, and it's, um, it's a word that was most often used in secular Greek literature to describe the debate among philosophers. So the majority time that the word is used in Greek literature, from where Paul got it, is verbal exposure of your culture. Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit's role as he was ascending to heaven the night before. He said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, the Holy Spirit will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what makes this very interesting is the word convict in verse 8 is the same word that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 to expose. Convict. In John 16, 8, that's the role of the Holy Spirit is convict. Paul, we translate it as exposed, and they're the same Greek word, elinke. In other words, if you say, I'm not going to expose the deeds of my culture, then you're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit because that is what he's come to do. The Greek word expose or convict simply means to convict the sinner's conscience that what he's doing is spiritually dark away from God for the purpose that he might leave the darkness for the light. He won't know to leave darkness unless you tell him it's darkness. Well, the command is pretty clear. Like, 
You probably have never heard a sermon on it. I've never preached a sermon on it. The call of God is to expose the deeds of our culture. So it's clear, but a lot of people don't obey it. Why not? Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at five reasons. They may grow by next week, but five now, three this Sunday. Number one is we do not want to deal with our own sin. We look at a verse, Ephesians 5.11, expose the deeds of darkness, and we disobey it by pulling out the humble card and say, well, I can't really do that because I deal with a lot of sin in my own life. It sounds noble at first until you realize that that statement is actually a justification for continuing to live in disobedience. That I'm not going to clear up my life in order to help somebody with their life. You know, Jesus did have this conversation very much related to this. He said, when you're with somebody and you see that they have a speck, like a splinter in their eye, don't try to help them get that out until you first get your, your own, not a f- speck, but a log in your own eye. It's a statement of humility, obviously. But we really forget what he did say. He finished the, he finished the story like this. First, Take the plank out of your eye, then confront your culture. He did not say, well, everybody's living in sin, so everybody leave their eyes full of logs. That's where we've said, that's where we've landed now in our our culture. The second reason we don't obey Ephesians 5.11, confronting our culture, it's related to the first, but a a little bit different is we don't believe we have the authority to make known the sin of our culture. I've pointed this out before, but I think in the context of witnessing, it's very interesting how you could see two things said in Scripture, and they almost look like there's no way they can fit in the same Bible. God's notorious for doing that. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world in John 8, 12, and then in Matthew 5, 14, he says, "Uh, you're the light of the world. So what he wants you to understand by saying two things like that is that you're right. You don't have any personal authority to go convict the world of its sin. No personal authority to do that. But when he saves you and sends you, you're not going in your authority. You're going in the authority of the light of the world. Paul combined these in Ephesians 5.8. We're very grateful to see how they fit in one verse. For you were... Once darkness, but now you are light. So you need to get used to that. That's your authority. In Christ, in the Lord, you are light. You have the authority to speak. I I love the way, obviously you can see with the words highlighted there, were and are. Paul does that a lot, what you were, what you are. Uh, But really, no no place like in 1 Corinthians, he, he lists a catalog of sins that are are just catastrophic in their, uh, in their reach, in their breadth. And then, right after he describes all of these sins, he reminds the Corinthian church they've been forgiven of all of that. It's beautiful. This is what he said. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And that is what some of you were. That's, he just, had just described all the sins. No need to do it. But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. If Paul were here today, I think he would rephrase it like this. Satan tells you what you were. Jesus tells you who you are. That's your authority, not what you were, but who you are in him. So you've got to get used to your spiritual self-image over and over again. You need to be able to say to yourself, this is what I was, this is who I am. This is what I was, this is who I am. This is what I was, this is who I am. Because if our service to God was dependent at all upon our past, nobody could serve him. I mean, look at the Apostle Peter. He denied Jesus Christ at the cross. And yet at Pentecost in Jerusalem, it was Peter that Jesus chose to preach the first sermon that launched the church that's now been in existence for 21 centuries. Peter was chosen. Thomas doubted Jesus Christ even after the resurrection. And yet it was Thomas that Jesus chose to send to India as the first missionary in the name of Christ. If you're going to try to serve God, you've got to get used to Satan bringing up your past. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of the church. Revelation 12. As the old saying goes, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. God did not save you from your sin that you might wake up each day in regret. It's not the purpose of salvation. That would be a mean God. If there's ever a time when Jeremiah 29 and 11 11 and 12 applies, and it so often doesn't apply, I think it applies for those who are following Christ about what God wants you to look out and see. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you or condemn you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I've um, spent two, uh, had two counseling sessions this week. Interesting that it happened on the same week. Both men were dealing with, and both men were about the same age. You know, so you get sort of three-fourths of the way through your life, and you really accumulate a lot of regret. And so they were dealing with the regret. And uh, so I wrote a prayer for them. I said, if I were you, I would begin every day like this. This is not far from the way I began And this is a good way to begin your day if you're living in regret. Oh, Lord, you're the king above all and over all. Everything I have and need is from your generous hand. Thank you for the blood of Christ that forgives my sin. Give me new strength from your Holy Spirit for the trials and temptations I face. And help me to live this day to bless and serve others as you direct my steps. So no matter how you feel in life, no matter how you feel, every day, you just put on the righteous robe of Christ and say, I have the authority in Jesus to go speak to my culture. This is the only way I can stand up here and speak to you every Sunday. I just put on his robe right before I hit the stage and say, it is... In you and through you and by you, you've wrapped me in righteousness. I will speak to the church and to the culture. I don't know what you were, but if you trust Christ, I know what you are, forgiven. Number three, 
We have allowed the world. This is why we don't speak, why we don't confront culture. Because we see Ephesians 5.11 as a command. Why we don't obey that command. Third, we have allowed the world to redefine love as accepting one another's sin. When I was growing up, there was a very famous movie in the 70s called Love Story. And I hope I don't start crying as I talk about it. A little cynical there. And um, Allie McGraw, Ryan O'Neill. There was a phrase that came out of that that we like, man, just... Um, Today, we would say it went viral. Love means never having to say you're sorry. I'm just quoting the movie, not recommending that. So there's been gallons of ink through the years trying to understand what the girl meant when she said it. And finally, most of us have just concluded that it's simply an annoying phrase. Because if you're in any kind of relationship, you realize probably the most... The best parts of your relationship, if you lived a little while, is when people, somebody you love has come to you and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. I mean, especially if you're married. I mean, I said it last night. We're keeping our grandson this weekend, and I was changing his diaper, and I don't know how it happened, but I'm trying to get the diaper thing, and he's got... Vaseline all over his hand. And Lisa comes in and says, how in the world? I got mad. I said, well, he was doing a lot of stuff. So then I had to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being angry. I appreciate the testimony from Scott and Barb on re-engage, and I, I hope that has sparked an interest in you. Uh, I, it's been one of the better moments in our 18 years, this re-engage, uh, really 15-week marriage retreat and renewal. And a lot of couples have had the opportunity to just slow down in life and say, find out that you know, maybe there was an area where they could, could say, wow, I, I didn't realize that hurt. I'm sorry. And so much healing took place right then. It's a beautiful thing. I appreciate Andrew so much. Leading in that, just so well. Modern culture has changed love story to a new thing. Not love means never having to say you're sorry. This is how modern culture says it. Love means that you will let me stay in my sin. In fact, if you try to persuade me to leave my sin, you are judging me. That's the new love storyline. Culture has developed a an expertise in intimidating believers into silence by telling us that if we do confront culture, we are unloving and judgmental. You'll hear the word judging used a lot in coming years. It's a new tactic. And the darkness is so strong, it's intimidated many believers into silence. Listen, when I confront somebody and really just lovingly help them see their sin, uh, and, and they uh, tell me you're judging me, I respond to them the same way every time. Oh, no, 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 you misunderstand. What I've shared with you is not a personal opinion. I'm simply telling you what God has said. He is the designer of your body and your soul. I'm not judging you. I'm simply communicating to you 
that apart from God, you'll miss the very purpose for which he created your body and soul. I'm not judging you. Just telling you what he has said. So culture says we're judging. Unfortunately, many in the church who get their theology a lot more from social media than they do from the word of God. They embrace that. They have to be quiet. And, um, and not only do they embrace it, they teach it. They try to persuade others to believe that speaking is, is wrong. Speaking out is wrong. It's unloving. Amy Grant, who was once known as a popular Christian songwriter, is, is uncomfortable with a Christ who calls people to leave their sin. In a recent interview with Apple Music's Proud Radio, she was asked about God's love for the LGBTQ community that's rising up within the country music industry. And for many years, Amy Grant has had a large following among the gay community for which I'm grateful. Because um, there have been many songs that have come out of her mouth, even her whole album and hymns that uh, are based on the truth of God. And man, may, they, may we all hear those and believe the hymns. Um, I would say in my life, among my most meaningful conversations I've ever had in counseling uh, have been with those involved in uh, homosexuality uh, and are wavering with some degree of doubt about uh, God's purpose and design, not feeling quite as confident as they, they once did, and they'll come to my office and I think I have just enjoyed shocking every one of them by saying, well, I struggle with sexual purity also. And it is a struggle for all of us to give this area of our life to Christ. Everybody struggles with it. But God's design for our lives sexually, His design brings more pleasure than the world's design. So, I'm glad that many are listening to her hymns and Christian music. But under the pressure of the darkness in that moment of that interview, which took place in July last of this year, the darkness silenced her. And let me tell you something. I do not like a microphone stuck in my face. One problem with... Uh, this ministry right here is, um, I really can't go back next week and say, well, what I really meant was, we have 18 years of me teaching that are recorded. So what I meant is what I said. Not what I thought. No, what I meant was what I said. And anytime the news media has come to this church, and they'll give me a little warning that we're coming to interview, want to ask a question about your church. Anytime they come, I, the staff can tell you I'm scared to death because there's going to be a microphone and a tape recorder. And normally I try to write out everything. I said, send me your questions in advance. And a lot of times I'll ask them, can I send you a written manuscript of my answer? Because I just realized when the microphone is in your face, every one of us can get it wrong, especially under the pressure of darkness. And she did that day. This is what she said. It's so important to set a welcome table because I was invited to a table where someone said, don't be afraid, you're loved. Gay, straight, it does not matter. 
It doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired. We're all our best selves when we believe to our core, I'm loved. And then our creativity flourishes. Now, the reason that I mention her by name, it's not unloving to disagree with somebody. That our culture needs to learn that. Sheesh. But because she professes faith in Christ, people believe that what she is saying is found in Scripture. And they are hanging their eternal hope on her words. And she will have to give an account of every word she speaks in the name of God. We all do. You do. I do. This is why this, this, is, why this is written, every word for a word. I have to give an account but this is what she ended up saying by that quote. When you understand true love, your behavior doesn't matter. What matters is you celebrate love, and as long as you dwell on love, you will become your best. Now think about what that, you play that out to the end, that you can live in defiance to God and still achieve your best. Well, at this point, you have every right to ask, well, how would you have said it? Well, I would have started where she started because she nailed it at the beginning when she said, we need to set a big table. That's a beautiful metaphor of what God, how God describes himself in the book of Revelation. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody would open the door, I'd come eat with him at the table. So, need a big table. Jesus Christ says to everybody, come and eat. Come and drink. And look in the book of John how large the table is. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So how big is God's table? My last count, 7.4 billion people could fit. That's the population of earth. 7.4 billion people are invited to the table. And the Bible says, Whoever... Whoever believes in Christ, whoever will say, I want to be done with sin and uh, I want to come to Christ, gets a seat at the table. It's a big table. Pastors, prostitutes, politicians, porn addicts, greedy businessmen, angry gang members, liars, thieves, drunkards, those who cheat, those who kill, those who think about immorality, those who do immorality, Nice people, mean people, successful people, lazy people, writers, welders, bankers, bookies, dark skin, light skin, those in the religious south to those in the religious Middle East, all need Christ and all are invited to his table. It's a big table. And he's inviting you today. Leave your sin, place your faith in Christ. Look what God does. Look at the promise in John for those who come to the table. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. You want to come to God's table and say, I've sinned, this is what I've done? I remember the first time I ever confessed sin to my prayer partner. I'd known him six years before I got honest. We just did little piddly prayers, like, Lord, bless all the missionaries. And forgive us of our bad thoughts. 
And I went in my office one day and told him everything I'd ever done, everything I wanted to do. And he looked and said, I've never loved you more. That's what Jesus does at the table. Doesn't condemn. All those who repent and come to Christ, he saves. So in two verses, God says, he describes the table four times as the world. You can read those. John 3, 16 and 17, four times he says, the table is as big as the world. And it's interesting, God's table, interesting, the world is now coming to us as here in America as never before. I think we're about to get a lot of precious refugees from Afghanistan. I think World Relief and other organizations that we used to partner with, I think they're going to be back in business and there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of people that need housing and a lot of people that need a church. A lot of people are going to need help with jobs and language. Grateful Amber and Thurston, you started English Crossing and Katie's taking it up now and, and we're ready, I hope, for many refugees from Afghanistan. So the world's coming. And I hope that we lavish them with the love and truth of Jesus Christ. And by the way, for all of you college students who are returning, I'm going to eat with you in just a minute. If you hear this semester that these Afghanis are coming to, these Afghans are coming to a flawed country, surely you will hear that, then tell the people who told you that you are correct. Right now it has about 350 million flaws, which is the population of the United States. But God has blessed this land with freedom and opportunity, especially the opportunity to hear the gospel. No one sneaks across the border into North Korea at night to look for hope. And no one tries to hang onto a cargo plane because they are so desperate to leave their country as they did in Afghanistan. You've seen the pictures of people who fell off the plane. One of them was 18 years old. He was a soccer player in Afghanistan, a national superstar. Knew that his freedom under the Taliban was about to be eliminated and risked his life to hang onto a plane that he might get to play soccer in America. And he died, 18 years old. So whenever God sends the world to you as he is now, please shine the truth and grace of Christ upon them that they may leave the darkness for the light and come to Christ's table. But you've got to keep reading in the book of John because no matter how big the table is and no matter how much expense God has gone to throw the dinner, do you know what it costs God to put the dinner on? The blood of his son is how much it costs to feed the world. The blood of his son. No matter how much God says, come to the table, I'll pay all the expenses, the world still says, I don't want to come to the table. John 3, 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So the world says, I don't want to come to the table if I have to leave my sin. And now we have churches and leaders all across the world. We'll talk about more of this next week. 
that says God's love for you means you don't have to leave anything. And that's a huge message now going out from a new church. In fact, many people are saying that what you're doing now is not sin. It's the way you're wired. But because God loves us and tells us the truth, he tells us, no, what you're doing in the dark is sinful. And I want to forgive you. And I want to cleanse you. Come to the light. Anybody want to guess at the end of verse 20? People don't come to the light because their fear will be exposed. Anybody want to guess what that word is exposed? Same one, elinke. Same word here that's used in John 16 to talk about the, the convicting role of the Holy Spirit that's used in Ephesians 5.11 to describe the exposing work of Christians in their culture. It's just all over the Bible. This is our calling. Expose the world of their darkness so they'll come to the light. Most of us were raised with this children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, I, I can't think of anything more profound in life than that statement. <laughs> it's the best. Can I share with you equally great reality if we just change the words around a little bit? Jesus knows me. This I love. At the center of salvation is the relief of being known by God. The love of being known by God. You don't hate him for knowing you. You love it. You're no longer hiding and lying and rationalizing and excusing and dodging. No, you're fully open before God. Fully honest about how messed up you are. And fully desiring that he become involved in your mess. And fully believing that he will enter into every area of your life. When you say yes to him. I mean, you're not going to get cured overnight. You're not going to get cured until you die. But it is a leaning toward the light that is the mark of salvation. It's what it means to be saved. You love being known. You love the light shining on you. That makes you feel safe when you're known. Nobody feels safe when they're running. You're hiding. No, you feel safe when you're open to God, honest with God, and you tell him, I've given myself to sin, and I even like it. Tell him that. And that you need his help to fight it. And then you discover just how loved you are. When he says, I'll forgive you of anything. If you uncover it with honesty, I will cover it with grace. I praise God for that he so loved me, he's never stopped calling me out of the darkness. I mean, every week, every day, he is calling me out of darkness into light. God is never more loving than when he finds us lying in a pile of sin in the dark, hiding from him, even hating him, and he turns on the light. Everything becomes visible, and he says, I want to cleanse you of all of this filth with the blood of my son. I want to give you his robe of perfection, and I want you to eat at my table. The invitation of God could not be more eloquently stated than what the band is about to lead us in singing. So you'll be ready for the song? I'll just read two verses to you. 
in advance. Oops, no, I won't. I won't. I'll read them out loud to you, which will be more effective. This is actually a teaching technique. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you have opened your table to me. All the meals that I've enjoyed there um, of forgiveness and renewed purity, renewed strength. The days I've come to the table exhausted and you, I regained joy. The days that I came bitter and you replaced hate with love. The days that I came to the table and my mind was, had been so full of darkness, of lust, impurity, uh, thoughts I didn't even want in my head. You cleansed me. You smiled and you said, uh, I can take care of that too. Lord, I've done it thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. And I thank you that the chair has always been waiting for me. The table has always been ready. Food has always been there. And Jesus has always been there for me to talk to and to be um, comforted by. I pray that someone today in this church would come to the table, come to the light, no matter what they've been doing in the dark. They just admit it and begin to deal with it by coming to Christ and exchanging the darkness for the light and the deeds of death for the works of life. The power of the Holy Spirit, a new start, divine cleansing by divine blood. May they come to the table. And Father, would you give this courage, the church the courage? Would you give this church the courage to be unapologetic about shining for the light of the world? For his light only saves, cleanses, purifies. We have nothing, Lord, but gratitude for the message we've been given. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we shine. May we speak in his name. Christ, amen.